Hello and welcome to episode number 93 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, June 1st, 2010. Now, it is true, I usually release episodes of the podcast on Mondays, but this past weekend was Memorial Day weekend, and I took a little day off yesterday. I hope those of you who had a three-day weekend this past weekend enjoyed that. And for those of you who did not, well, I hope you enjoyed your weekend anyway. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we're joined by Douglas Lane, who is the podcaster at the Diet Soap Podcast. Douglas Lane has appeared on the Agro Innovations Podcast previously, although I can't remember the episode number off the top of my head. Do you remember, Doug? I could look. Well, I wouldn't worry too much about it. (laughs) Uh, People can check out the archive online if they want to listen to that interview. Douglas Lane, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Well, hey, thanks for having me on again. You're welcome. I uh, I enjoy uh, talking to you. I'm most interested in talking to you because you actually know something about agriculture and plants and all of that. Uh, So I'm hoping that I can pick your brain a little bit maybe after this conversation about the edible plants and how to find them and all of that kind of thing. Well, let's talk about that because since last time you and I talked, um, well, we, I believe, talked for the Diet Soap podcast, and we talked about radical permaculture. Mm-hmm. And it seems like at that moment an idea kind of sparked in your head, and I'm sure you've been working on this in a lot of different ways, and I'm sure it sparked in your head in other ways at other conversations that you were having but it seemed like you started to have an interest in, you know, getting involved in food in your neighborhood somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, about 2008, you know, when George Bush came on television and announced that we were going to have another uh, Great Depression, I began to be much more interested in the backyard garden that my wife had already planted um, because I just saw it as something that we really probably needed. Um, and that thought has stayed with me. We, we grow some food, but not nearly you know, enough to, to live on. Um, but uh, so that, that idea that just that we need to take control of uh, our own food supply in some way and have kitchen gardens and, and, and that kind of thing is, you know, was kind of natural to, to fall into if you're uh, thinking at all about the economic and kind of general crisis that we're in. Um, but the idea of doing urban foraging um, as not just something to, to do kind of as a stopgap survival uh, <laughs> uh, technique, but to, to do it uh, in order to challenge the system that we're in and to create relationships with other people in my community and with the physical environment uh, itself, uh, that came to me over the year that I did the first, you know, podcast for Diet Soap, and and really in our conversation especially. Well, okay, and let's let's get into this in more detail. Uh, let's have you take a step back first and tell people you've got this project up on Kickstarter. Uh, yeah. Give the ep- audience for this podcast a short speech on that. What, okay. What's going on with that? Oh, okay, I, I will. Um, 
I have this uh, idea of writing a book. So the, the primary thing that this project is, 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 a, is a book project. Um, I, uh, before the economic collapse even, I started writing a, what I thought of at the time as a surrealist self-help book. Um, and I published some of it online at, um, uh, on a zine called Farrago's Wainscot. And the idea of writing a surrealist self-help book uh, was twofold. One is that I've always thought that my creative writing should have more of an impact on how I actually live than it does. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I kind of take this approach to art in general, that it, it, it isn't something that should be relegated outside of life. It should flow into life. And my own short fiction and, and novels and things hadn't really done that. They, you know, I, I enjoy writing fiction, but it is very easy to just be creating another little commodity for consumption when you, when you relegate your creativity to that kind of production. And so I thought, well, why don't I write something that's nonfiction, but it will actually challenge me to change what I'm doing. And so I wrote this first part of a surrealist self-help book. And what I ended up doing was just writing another short story. It, it didn't, it didn't achieve its ultimate goal. I think it's a fun short story, but it, it, it wasn't enough for me to call it surrealist. Um, I needed something really tangible. I, I'm, I'm hoping that grabbing something really t tangible like urban foraging uh, as an act will will help me create a, a, a work that uh, does challenge me and maybe the reader as well to alter how uh, I'm relating to my neighborhood and my life. So that's what the Pick Your Battle project is. It's kind of like take two on this idea of a surrealist self-help book. And I um, have been asking for people to make pledges on Kickstarter to help me fund the writing and the production of it, the printing of it when I'm done. And it's people have been kicking in. It's 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 been going fairly well. Um, but I don't know if, if that's it covers enough of the ground you want to cover. But uh, that's what the Pick Your Battle project is. Okay, are you familiar with uh, PirateMyFilm.com? I'm not. Tell me about it. Well, it's a website. You can check it out. I'll link to it on the show notes for this podcast. But it's kind of similar. But it's for films. And it's, it was started by Max Kaiser, who's a financial and economic commentator and analyst. And the idea is that you can put your film idea up on there. People can invest in that film ahead of time so that it can be made. And it mm -hmm. just seems like a similar kind of model that you're using. Yeah, it is. Kickstarter um, is a platform online that funds a variety of different projects, film projects, writing projects, uh, art installations, schools, uh, alternative schools. Uh, they've all turned to Kickstarter to kind of get funding. Um, you're not investing when you pledge on Kickstarter. You're not going to be getting a, a share of the profits from whatever the project is. You're getting a reward for it. So people will kick in a dollar or two and get a copy of a short story I've written, in my case, or, or the, they might uh, get a the, the copy of the book either in a PDF file or the actual book when it's done. Um, so you, it's it's more of a kind of a donation than an investment. But um, that model has worked for a variety of really interesting projects, including um, Ted Rawls' 
recent project, he wants to go back to Afghanistan. He's a journalist and a comic strip artist. And in the early years of the 2000s, um, he went to Afghanistan and wrote a book about it. And he wants to go back now, but he couldn't find a publisher able to fund the trip. They'll print the book, but they won't, they can't fund the trip now. So he went to Kickstarter and he, he got quite a lot of money from people who wanted to see that book happen. And, uh, he's going to be going back to Afghanistan in August. Okay. But, um, the, the thing with something like pirate, pirate, my film would be not necessarily that people would get profits, although that could be in the bargain. Mm -hmm. People could get advertising space at the beginning of the film. If they have a service or a website or a product that they want people to Mm -hmm. pay attention to. Yeah. Well, with Kickstarter, you could do something like that. Uh, You know, you, every individual project can create its own reward system. So, you know, putting the name of the group that donated uh, at the beginning of a film or at the beginning of a book is, is something that you could offer as a reward. Um, but typically when you think about investors in a film, you're thinking about people who have a share in the profits. You know, they're investing in for, for a return. And that isn't what happens at Kickstarter. I don't know about the pirate my film, but... Uh, I think there's flexibility in that regard, but yeah. I think mostly people are investing for a share in the profits. I don't know how much activity is actually going on on that on that site. I would encourage people to check it out. So let me ask you now, this, this reminds me of a conversation that you and I had in terms of what would be the exchange, what would be the... Mm-hmm. So people are receiving a reward for for financing part of this Kickstarter project. I'm wondering if you see this as part of the emerging uh, gift economy or anarchist economy that some people are, you know, now talking about and discussing? You know, I see the urban foraging effort and what we're going to do with that as more directly connected to this gift economy notion. Um, I, I definitely think that there's an element of that in the Kickstarter model itself. Um, but... It's not all. It's not that far away from what NPR does too, right? I mean, they just ask people who enjoy the uh, the NPR programming to contribute, and you know, you might get a mug or something <laughs> for contributing, um, and that is a, a kind of a gift. You're definitely making a gift to NPR when you donate. Um, but uh, so yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd have to really think about it a little bit more. Uh, whether Kickstarter truly fits in with the the gift economy as I see it, I definitely think that that direction of funding creative projects uh, certainly shares a, the same feeling. You know, that comes from the same kind of motivations as uh, the uh, that might motivate a gift economy. So, um, yeah, I think I do think it does it fits. But I, I it was actually just recommended to me. Um, by one of the listeners of Diet Soap that I try to fund my project that way, and it, and it didn't seem wrong, but I, had, I didn't think about it uh, in terms of the gift economy as deeply as I might have. Okay, but there's a few things going on here. One, you're not NPR. You're just a guy. Right. And if I was to donate money to you to do this project, you're, I'm giving something to you, you're producing the book and presumably offering it for a low price online or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also engaging with your local community 
And then that experience is documented in your book that others of us can take and learn from. So it seems like, I I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, the concept of an anarchist economy. We don't even really know what that looks like or could look like. Right. So it seems like there would be all kinds of different exchanges and gifts and investments for profit, investments not for profit, donations, bartering, time sharing. You know, it seems like there's room for all of that in there, right? Yeah, I I definitely agree. And, you know, um, I guess I'm just confessing to the fact that while I may be actually practicing the uh, the gift economy in, in approaching funding this project that way, maybe just because I'm on the receiving end, I didn't view it that way <laughs> as much. I, I would view it that way more easily if I was giving rather than taking. But um, I definitely do see that it is in line with that. And certainly I'm not in PR. And when you contribute to this project, you know exactly what it's going for. It's going to give me the time to write the book and then to print it. And so, you know, it's it's very specific. It's not like you're giving to a big uh, bureaucracy that, you know, may spend the money in a variety of different ways without knowing what you're really investing in. So if I was donating to your project, I would expect you to give something back to your community in honor of the gift that I was giving you. Right. Um, beyond the, beyond the actual forging project itself, and and the and what would came out of that, or or would well, that be it, what it I would be embodied get? in the project, right? I mean, yeah. you're going out, yeah. you're talking to your neighbors, you're talking about food and plants and why it's important, and obviously mm-hmm. that's something that we need. Yeah, I d- that would definitely be uh, kind of an intangible benefit to investing in this uh, pick your battle project. Is that um, it would help kind of get the word out and empower people who are already interested in um, the, these kind of transitional movements to a more sustainable way of living and, and a more sustainable way of relating to each other. Now let's talk about the mechanics of actually how you're going to do this. Okay. Just talk us through what you plan to do in terms of engaging your community, getting out there, talking to people, and also maybe talk a little bit about what you have in mind for the book. Okay. Well, one of the things that's nice about this book is that I don't have to invent a whole lot. Um, the The things that I'm planning on doing now have been done by others before. So one thing I, I'm planning on doing is incorporating uh, psychogeographic field trips <laughs> into my urban foraging uh, efforts. Now, that sounds very fancy. What it really means is uh, I'm planning on with my family and with others, uh, my neighbors, just going on random walks with the idea being that we're going to find edible plants, but also with the idea being that we're going to kind of discover our environment and how it directs us because we're living in this residential neighborhood that's a built environment and just walking it without an, uh, an intent, um, uh, to, to go any particular place, uh, is going to lead to understanding the relationship that's already there more fully. So if you, the idea about a psychogeographic, uh, walk, it's called a derive is, um, that you are letting the environment you're in direct where you're going. Um, so that's part of the project. The, the other thing that I'll be doing is connecting with, um, uh, unschooling groups and uh, urban foraging groups that are already uh, active in Portland. Um, there's Urban Gleaners and uh, Portland Fruit Project. I 
been emailing and trying to start a conversation with both of those organizations uh, to just kind of see how they're operating and how what they're doing could help or influence uh, what I'll be doing in my neighborhood. And how are you going to be interacting with people in the neighborhood? I mean, do you have a strategy for that? It's not always easy, right? Especially in these suburban neighborhoods. Well, you know, I live in an old neighborhood in Portland uh, called Woodstock, and we tend to know our neighbors already. So I've already asked a few people if they want to participate in, in just going on, a, on a, a walk to do some foraging. And so I'm just I'm going to start with that. Um, you know, the, the idea there would to go after I you know just deal with the neighbors I, I know would be to maybe um, uh, work through the community center. There's a Woodstock Community Center. I could uh, just post flyers there. Um, there are some online lists that I, I'm going to be uh, utilizing, basically just conversations that are going on with, with people who share these values, permaculture lists and um, unschooling lists. And I've already invited people who I don't know, actually, to, to go on what I'm calling radical field trips. Um, so uh, the, the foraging part is something that's going to be really super local. I'm just going to start from my own house and wander out and take, you know, people along with me who want to go, uh, meaning my own kids, and I've got four of them, so right there is a big group, <laughs> but also, you know, neighbors and, uh, and friends uh, who, who want to do that with us. Um, but then the other side of it, I, I, this other part of the project, which isn't about foraging, is I'm, I'm calling radical field trips, and what I want to do is explore the infrastructure that's already in place in Portland. Uh, I've already done this to an extent. I, I just took my family to the um, sewage treatment plant uh, just to see what was being done with wastewater, how it was being managed now, uh, just to kind of connect to a part of life that we tend not to think about. Um, you know, you, you flush the toilet and you think it's evaporated, it's gone, but it actually there's pipes being, uh, there's a lot of energy that's being used to direct sewage to uh, the Columbia Boulevard uh, treatment plant, and then it has to be dealt with there, and it's a very, very large project. Um, so just exploring what's going on now, seeing to the what to what extent what's already happening uh, around electricity and sewage and water and agriculture in our community now, to what extent those things are using sustainable practices and to what extent they're not, and just getting a grasp of what we're really dealing with currently is going to be another part of the of the project. Well, taking a trip to a wastewater treatment facility is a very enlightening experience and I'm I'm glad you're actually going to do that. I've done that myself and We've done we've done it actually. Oh, you we, have. Yeah, we're probably going to go back again. It was really interesting. One of the most interesting things about it for me as someone who uh, has never really enjoyed being an employee was running across someone uh, who was a worker there who loves his job. This is a, you know, to, to, to whatever degree it's a sustainable project. I don't think it is as it stands now. Um, this was someone who was doing work he really cared about, felt uh, that he was a part of something that really mattered. He'd been there for 35 years. He was, obviously, he had to engage his full self in his, in, in his work. You know, it was intellectually challenging. It uh, offered him opportunities to be creative. Uh, and he really enjoyed showing us around the, the plant and, and uh, uh, I got a real sense that there was real passion about what he was doing. 
one of the things I would encourage you to do on this is to uh, make some maps. Do you have a GPS? I don't, but I could probably get one relatively, with, you know, it's not too expensive these days, right? Yeah, they really aren't too expensive these days. So I would encourage you to get a GPS and learn how to get that GPS to work with something um, like maybe Google Maps or Google Earth. Or there's plenty of free GPS software packages out there, and I'm sure if you fiddled around with it a little bit, you could figure it out. It would be a great visual aid to start conversations with people in your neighborhood, and also to co include in the book um, to have these maps and for people to be able to look at and have them be referential so we can see how the landscape is actually laid out and mm -hmm. how you interacted with that landscape. Yeah, it, it would, and it would all be about kind of flows, right? I mean, start, starting with sewage is kind of obviously about a flow, um, but it's about kind of energy flows and social flows and, and how uh, things are directed in your community because the, the, that's what's going on every day. The, there are all these flows of people and sewage and electricity and food. It's all moving around this map and to kind of be able to visualize it and see it. Um, would be a useful thing. So I want to talk to you about, do you plan to make any jams or jellies or, you know, get together and collect medicinal plants? What, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, you, you know, we actually got, we have a, a canner, so, um, we are definitely, uh, planning on preserving some of what we take, uh, from foraging. Um, we'll, as far as the actual plants that we're, we're going to aim at collecting, um, to be honest, this is a weak point for me. I don't know it, it, it to fully what I can expect to find. I mean, I've gotten, you know, I found where the blackberry bushes are. Those are easy. And I know that there's dandelions everywhere and I know where the big fig tree is near nearby, but, um, there's a, quite a lot, I'm sure, that's edible or medicinal that I'm missing. And so one of the things I'm doing is getting books on how to identify edible plants and wanting to connect to these organizations like the Portland Food Tree Project and Urban Gleaners just to be able to talk to people and maybe go on a walk with some people who know their stuff better than I do um, and, and get that kind, of, uh, that kind of information, that kind of feeling for uh, my environment by working with others who have the knowledge already. Um, but yeah, the big question there that's kind of uh, the, you didn't ask explicitly, but is implicit is what are we going to do with what we forage? If we have a large group go out and we forage more than we all need, what are we going to do with the excess? And one thing we could do is um, is preserve it, uh, you know, divide it all up amongst the people who actually foraged and then preserve the excess. Another thing we could do is we could do what the group like Portland Fruit Tree Project does, donate the excess to um, uh, food banks and food, food projects like uh, Food Not Bombs and, and that kind of thing. Um, so going to people who are hungry in the community. Um, but I, I'm tempted to want to keep the, the harvest in the community as much as possible and to avoid um, sending it out into the nonprofit uh, system um, that's already there. I, I, I don't know what people are going to want to do, um, but uh, that's, right now I, I would be 
aiming at preserving it for people who actually forage more than donating it, but I, I'm not I'm not sure. Okay, so you you obviously have four kids, just like you told us. Um, mm-hmm. Your kids, I'm sure, go to school. So how about engaging the schools that your kids go to? You know, they they don't go to school. We are uh, homeschooling right now, or actually unschooling right now. So, um, but we do live about a, a block away from uh, Woodstock Elementary, and we do know a lot of people whose kids go to school. Um, but do you think that uh, that this could be something that um, the school would want to get involved in, just in the community and sending out foraging uh, expeditions from from school? Sure, I think that would be a great field trip. Yeah, I mean, it's, it would be really easy to organize amongst the unschoolers that are in the in this community. Uh, in fact, that's one of the people, the groups of people that I'm definitely going to be talking to. I mean, I'm already talking to Amy and, and um, I'm sorry, Annie and, and a few of the other uh, homeschooling mothers in the, in the community now, Rachel and, you know, my wife is talking to them more than I am, but they're, uh, they're interested in this. And uh, talking to people online, this is something that's right up most people's alley. They're very interested in doing it and some of them are already doing it. Um, so, uh, unschooling expeditions, forging expeditions are definitely going to be a part of it and kids will be involved. Certainly mine are. My five-year-old and uh, probably the most enthusiastically involved in the foraging efforts. He enjoys, he enjoys knowing what plants to look for and finding them. I mean, oh, he, he picks a lot of dandelions. Now we can't even go anywhere without him grabbing, uh, dandelion greens. Well, to share a little bit of my own experiences in my neighborhood, uh, there are edible fruits everywhere that get thrown away quite a lot. Apricots are high on the list. Uh, apples and pears are very high on the list. Usually things like berries, raspberries, those things uh, tend to get harvested, although I do live in the desert. So, you know, where you are in Oregon, maybe that stuff just is kind of everywhere and you can just kind of forage it. There's more forest where you are, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually even sometimes I find psychedelic plants in people's yards and in containers and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are plenty of species of plants out there, I think, that people don't even know. You know, I'm I'm certainly not an expert on all the medicinal plants that are out there and that is such a huge topic that you would, it almost seems like you would need several experts to really put something together that was, you know, effective it, in terms of being a medicine and also available where you are. Yeah. No, you know, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I hadn't really thought I was going to do too much with this book is try to provide, a, you know, a real technical, uh, supplement where people could turn to my book and say, okay, now that I've read this, I'll be able to identify mushrooms or I'll be able to find the right kind of roots and that kind of thing. Um, foraging is something that is you can develop over a lifetime. I mean, I, I'm going to write this book in a few months, but it's not like I'm going to stop when I'm done with the book. And that's something else that I kind of look forward to is developing um, more a long-term relationship to the plants in my community and the people in my community. Um, so yeah, what will all fit into the book? I don't know, but, uh, definitely talking to people who know their stuff already. Um, uh, Jason Rizzo is actually planning on 
he's a, a, a fellow podcaster. He was a, a podcaster and he's been on the sea realm, uh, as a, as a host actually, uh, once I think, um, he's going to take us on a mushroom expedition in October. Um, cause he knows how to find mushrooms that are not poisonous. Not, he, he doesn't, uh, pick the ones that could be, or, you know, you have to really know your stuff to, to, to tell if it's the right variety. He just goes with the ultimately safe, you know, easy to find mushrooms. But, uh, that's something that we'll, we'll look forward to. And I, I that kind of thing is, is definitely something I want to do more. Yeah. And I strongly encourage anybody who's kind of looking to, to get into this to get with someone just like you're doing, Doug, who knows whatever it is that you're looking for. It's a lot faster. You can use books. Mm-hmm. N- mushrooms are notoriously difficult to, to identify just using books. It can be done, uh, but it's so much easier. Michael Pollan writes about this, right? When someone shows you the mushroom, you just suddenly get a feel for what that mushroom is and what it looks like, and then you really can't go wrong. Well, uh, you can, but you also know what to look for in those cases. You do need to be careful. Um, there are mycological societies that organize fall and spring forays every year. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to kind of look for their mycological society locally. Those will sometimes cost money, but it's usually you know not too much. And that's a great way. They're usually led by professional mycologists. That's a great way to get out there and start learning how to identify uh, forest species and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm really lucky because I think Portland has a lot of these kinds of projects going on where people are really open to sharing their knowledge, and and uh, so in a way, I'm kind of cheating. I've got a head start just living here. Um, we also have a, a lot of blackberry bushes. That's like it's almost a it's something people want to get rid of these blackberry bushes. So they're really easy to find. The you know what they're producing almost invariably goes to waste. Um, so if you're out there GPSing these things, then you actually have kind of a little database of your foraging resources in your community. Yeah, yeah, that's a, an excellent thing to do, and uh, it would be fun to, and it would kind of fit in with my uh, uh, idea that this connects to the uh, situationist uh, art movement from because they used to make maps too, and and uh, make these psychogeographic. Uh, artworks that are maps of Paris all cut up with uh, arrows pointing this way and that, mapping out the psychogeographic terrain. Well, this would be much more uh, practical, but I, I could imagine having fun with making the maps in, in a similar spirit. That concludes the first part of my interview with Douglas Lane of the Diet Soap podcast. I will link to some of the things that I mentioned in the show notes to this episode, specifically uh, piratemyfilm.com. And of course, I will link to Douglas Lane's Kickstarter project. If uh, the Kickstarter project sounds like something that you would like to support, you can click through on that link um, and you can support Douglas Lane in his Kickstarter project, his urban foraging endeavors. The agroinnovations.com website has received a bit of a makeover. Uh, I've mentioned this in the past that I have been doing some changes to the website, and those are pretty much completed. The Agro Innovations webpage now has an Agro Innovations blog, and I would hope that you would uh, check that out. A lot of the content on there is previous content that uh, is being recycled, but that blog will be updated probably on a weekly basis. So you can check that out. There is an RSS feed to subscribe to on that blog page. Um, 
and I will be writing about many of the things that we talk about um, on this podcast and also sharing some of the information from some of the projects that Agro Innovations is working on. So check out the Agro Innovations blog. You can, uh, there's a link to that on the webpage. And also the front page of the agroinnovations.com website has been simplified, as has been most of the web page in general. Uh, the primary content items are the Agro Innovations podcast and the Agro Innovations blog. And then, are, of course, there are the standard um, links that usually one finds on a website, ways to contact us, description of our services, our philosophy, and similar things. So please, if you haven't been to agroinnovations.com in a while, check it out. There's some new things on there, and I hope you will like that. Your feedback is welcome. Next week, Douglas Lane will be back on the Agroinnovations podcast for part two of our interview. And part two, we will be talking about the politics of the small mart revolution. If you remember, in uh, some previous episodes of the Agroinnovations podcast, I spoke with Michael Schumann, who is the author of The Small Mart Revolution. And I wanted to discuss with Doug some of the implications of the small mart revolution from the perspective of a socialist anarchist. And so we spent about a half an hour on that. And if that sounds like something you would be interested in, I would encourage you to tune in next week for episode number 94 of the Agro Innovations podcast. Agro Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. We are also on Facebook. Uh, there are links on the webpage. You can click through and check us out on those pages. Also, we are on iTunes, and you can subscribe to the Agro Innovations podcast either through iTunes or you can um, use the RSS feed that is provided on the Agro Innovations webpage. I'd like to let listeners know that I will be on this week's episode of the Sea Realm podcast. And as soon as that comes out, usually those come out on Wednesdays, I will link to that on the show notes for this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. And KMO and I will be talking about topics that may be of interest to you. Uh, we will be talking about agro collapse. We will be talking about micro-remediation of the disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, the oil spill disaster that is ongoing and seems endless. We will be talking about the use of mushrooms to clean up some of that mess. We will also be talking about the role of the mystical experience in sustainable agriculture and more particularly regenerative agriculture. So if those sound like topics that you would be interested in, then go check out this week's episode of the Sea Realm podcast. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.